This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading will be from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 19. It can be found on page 622 of the Black uh, Bible in your pew. Again, it is Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 19. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wonder from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Well, good morning. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus this morning, uh, into your presence on his merit alone, by his sacrifice alone. God, we thank you for your word and ask that this morning, as we open your word together, that you would speak to us. Ask that you would give a spirit of revelation, uh, a spirit of illumination, a spirit of inspiration would come and meet us where we are. God, I ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears and soften our hearts. God, that you would make us soft and receptive and pliant to your word this morning. God, would you have your way? Would you have your way among us? Would you humble us? Would you cause us to return to you, to call upon you, to look to you and to you alone? We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So after, over the next two weeks, uh, we're going to be spending some time in uh, what is maybe one of the most glorious prayers found in the book of Isaiah. Uh, as Isaiah has unpacked the promises of what God is going to do and how he's going to bring transformation and salvation to the ends of the earth, to his people, uh, Isaiah breaks forth in this glorious prayer that is the text we heard read this morning and all of chapter 64. And the reason that we broke it up isn't because, uh, you know, the, the chapter break, those are put in at a later time. We're actually breaking the thought of Isaiah in mid-flight, but 
what is found in this prayer is so rich, we wanted to slow down and take some time to see uh, and, and allow this text to instruct us in how to turn our hearts to the Lord, how to come to him in the place of desperation. If you remember from a few weeks back in Isaiah 62, verses six and seven, God demonstrated that part of how he would demonstrate his unwavering commitment to his purposes and his plans was that he would set these watchmen intercessors on the wall who would not stop putting him in remembrance until he accomplished his purposes of salvation. It would be one of the ways he expresses his commitment to his purposes and his people in the earth. And it, here in this moment, uh, after demonstrating how God would bring that transformation about, Isaiah puts on display what it looks like to put God in remembrance. He takes time to not just tell us that God is going to uh, stir this among his people. He embodies and enacts what it looks like to remembrance God. Now, as a reminder for us, uh, this part of Isaiah is spoken to a, a group of people who would be far in the future from Isaiah's actual time. He's looking down the corridors of future history to a time when the people of Israel would be decimated. Their, their city has been destroyed, their temple has been uh, uh, laid to waste, and they've been taken away into exile under the Babylonians. And it is in this moment that Isaiah embodies this prayer. So this prayer really is a turning, a, uh, a language of what it means to turn to God in the places of desperation, in the places where we are waiting for his promises to be fulfilled. And we need to hear this word this morning. And I think there's a lot for us particularly in our time where we find ourselves as a church family and I would say the broader church in our moment, this text is remarkably potent for us. And so what I want to do this morning is really just walk through the text we had read. I've got three broad uh, sections I want us to look at. The first thing is I want us to look at the remembrancing of prayer. And that will be verses seven to nine. What does remembrancing or uh, recounting or putting God in remembrance look like? Uh, the second thing we'll look at this morning is the confession of sin and our desperate need. That's in verses 11 to 14. And then finally, or 10 to 14. And then finally, the petition for God to act, which begins the turn to requesting God to do something, which we'll pick up next week and continue. So we'll see the remembrance of prayer. What does remembrancing God look like? Confessing before him, and then the petition for God to act. So look with me at the beginning here in verse seven, Isaiah begins his prayer in the place where all prayer is to begin. I want you to notice he doesn't begin with the plight of the people. He doesn't begin with their desperate state. He doesn't begin with their need. He doesn't begin with his request. He begins his prayer by looking upward and calling to mind something. Look with me at verse seven here when he says, I will recount. Recount there is the same word that we saw in Isaiah 62 when he said, I'll put watchmen on your wall, those who put me in remembrance. It's the same word uh, root there. So Isaiah is tipping us off to something that this is what it means to faithfully remember who God is. It's the place where all real, real prayer starts. He says here, I will recount something. The steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness uh, to the house of Israel that he has granted them.
according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Now here, I want you to see something that we, we may have a tendency to just gloss over or maybe miss. The thing that Isaiah proclaims he will remember is a specific aspect of God's dealings with his people. I want you to notice he said a very particular phrase at the beginning and the end of that sentence. He talks about the steadfast love of God. I want you to take it and in your Bible, underline it, circle it, do something to it in both of those. This is a really important concept for us. And I think it's important for us to drill down to look at what Isaiah is actually talking about here. Though I don't think it's always helpful or useful to talk about what's going on in the original languages, I think it is important for us to understand what Isaiah is saying here. Both at the beginning and end of verse 7, he mentions the steadfast love of the Lord as the object of his remembering. The idea of the steadfast love of God is essential for us to understand It's going to require just a little bit of work for us. So I want us to be patient as we set the table to figure this out. The the word in the original language that's translated here as steadfast love in the Hebrew is the word hesed. This word is an essential part of the Old Testament understanding of how God deals with his people. However, the idea of hesed is not simply what we would imagine as love in our contemporary frame of reference, right? We think of love, we think of something that someone feels or experiences internally. It's not even a concept of love that doesn't end uh, throughout the ages, right? We might say it's eternal love or it, it goes on forever, it doesn't change. That's not what this word is intended to make us understand here. Although those realities are true of God, this is not what is being communicated to us by Isaiah. The concept of this word is not talking about necessarily the inner disposition of God. It's not describing an emotion. It's not describing a feeling. It's not even really describing a character trait. Rather, in the frame of reference for Isaiah's hearers, this is denoting specific acts or events that are performed by one person for the benefit of another, oftentimes in the face of crisis, need, danger, or desperation. So I want to go to a couple places where we see this put on display in human relationships to paint a picture for what I think Isaiah is getting at here. Turn with me all the way back to Genesis chapter 24. It's on page 17 if you're using the Pew Bible. In Genesis 24, Abraham sends out his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac. He tells him to go out and search among his kinsmen and the servant goes out and right before, as he gets to where the kinsmen are, he prays this prayer. And in this prayer, we see what he's asking God to do on behalf of Abraham is a definitive act by demonstrating his faithful love or commitment to Abraham. Look with me at verse 12. The servant said, O Lord, God of my master, please grant me success today and show steadfast love. There we go, right? Underline it again, circle it. To my master Abraham. Now he's not saying show him some emotional disposition that you have to him. He's saying show him your commitment by granting me success in my endeavor acting on my behalf, doing something that you, uh, that would demonstrate that you are disposed towards Abraham favorably. Let the young woman to whom I say, this is verse 14, please let down your jar that I might drink and who shall say drink, I will water your camels. Let her be the one to whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. That's a pretty tall order, right? He's saying, do this thing and show that you're committed to Abraham. 
and the promises that you've made to him. So in doing this, in fulfilling this, in acting this way, demonstrate your hesed to him. Okay, that's one. Just put that in your brain and we'll move to the next one. Go to Joshua chapter two. Joshua chapter two, the children of Israel are going up into the land to conquer it. And the first place that they come is the city of Jericho. And they send these spies into Jericho to gauge uh, how, uh, how well it will go for them. And as these spies are in Jericho, the men of Jericho begin to turn against them and come up to kill them. And Rahab the harlot hides them and protects them. Now I want you to see in Joshua 2, verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord. So Rahab has hidden these men, protected them, kept them. As I have dealt kindly, underline dealt kindly. That's the same word. Doesn't say here shows steadfast love. She's saying what I have done is acted in a way towards you in your need and in your plight, doing something that you did not deserve. I have acted with this kind of kindness towards you. So will you then, when you come in to take over everything, will you show me the same hesed? Will you protect my family and keep me and watch over us? So this can be demonstrated all over the place in the Old Testament. This word literally occurs just shy of 250 times. It is something profoundly important. And looking at the composite picture portrayed throughout the Old Testament, we see that steadfast love, the steadfast love of God, it's a particular concept. It's the covenant faithfulness of the Lord displayed displayed in action towards his people. One author says it this way. He defines it as when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. That's chesed. So Isaiah begins here with this understanding. We see that Isaiah is not simply expressing that he is remembering the abstract concept that God is love in some abstract way or sentimental way. He's beginning his prayer by stating that in this place of desperate need, when the people have been seemingly forsaken, brought to their lowest point, finding themselves in exile with their city and their temple destroyed, he says in that moment, what I will begin to do is remember the concrete ways that God has demonstrated his steadfast love to us by way to build my faith and strengthen my resolve in the character of God. I want you to look at one more where we see a very similar reality. Go to Psalm 106. It's on page 505 if you're using the Pew Bible. We see this refrain over and over throughout the Old Testament, tons in the Psalms. He begins in verse one, the psalmist does, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And then what Psalm 106 does for us is simply recount the story of God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's continued unbelief and, and wandering and grumbling and uh, turning their hearts away from him. And it closes this way. Look at verse 44. After he's done this for 40 plus verses, Israel's brought to a low spot and he says, Nevertheless, the Lord looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So we see it again there. God's 
actions toward his people in the place where they have nothing to merit his favor. And yet, because of the abundance of his kindness, his disposition toward them, he acts in a way to give them what they did not deserve. That's what Isaiah is getting at here when he says, I will remember the steadfast love of the Lord. Again, he's not saying, I'm just going to muse upon some abstract concept of God's love. He's saying, God has time and time and time and time again demonstrated his faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. I'm going to remember those. I'm going to recount those. I'm going to rehearse those. I'm going to take that and put my trust in that is how he begins this prayer. So what does that look like here? He starts immediately by recounting some of these. Look at verse eight. He says, God said, surely they're my people, right? So he starts with election, the election of the children of Israel as the people of God. He says, you declared from the beginning, these are my people. I'm gonna remember that you picked us with nothing to offer you. Now, the election of God all throughout the Old Testament is very clear. Do you know why God picked Israel? Because he did. That's it. He says it all the time. He says, I didn't pick you because you were special, you were great in power, you were awesome, you had so much to give me. You were actually stiff-necked and hard-hearted. I picked you because I picked you. I showed chesed to you when you didn't deserve it. When you merited nothing and you had no right to expect anything from me, I gave you everything. I made you my people. That's where he starts. He says, you started, you picked us. I will remember the faithful love of God. You started all of this. You picked us. You said that you, we were your people. And he goes on and he says, then you worked salvation for us. Not only did you elect us, but you became our savior. When we were afflicted, verse nine, this is the language of the Exodus. When we were afflicted, you saw and you came among us and in the midst of our affliction, you saved us. You sent the angel of your presence in your love and in your pity, you redeemed us. Now, Look at that phrase there at the end of verse nine. In his love and in his pity. That idea of love is what we're talking about, the inner disposition, right? That's a different word. That's not steadfast love here. That is the inner disposition of God in charity toward his people. He had love and compassion and pity. And because of that, he saved them. So he says, you elected us, you saved us, you made us your own. When we didn't deserve it, when we were held in captivity and in bondage and had no right to call upon you, you stepped in and sent us a savior. In doing so, you demonstrated your steadfast love to us. I will recount that. I will remember that. So all prayer we see here, first and foremost, begins with remembering the actions of God's love, not just the reality that God is love, right? That can oftentimes lead us into misconceptions of how we relate to God. What Isaiah says here is, we begin prayer by recounting that God has demonstrated his love. And the scripture shows us how God demonstrates his love. So what does that look like in your life, right? In your prayer life, when you come in the place of need or in the place of desperation, what does it look like to remember the steadfast love of the Lord? Well, I'd start in the same place that Isaiah does in election. Ephesians 1 
verses three to six talk about the eternal counsels of God to save those who were his enemies who would come into Christ by faith, that he would save them, not on their merit, not on their worth, not because they deserved it, but because of his sovereign choice alone. So when you come in the place of prayer, go, I will recount that you chose me before the foundations of the world, before I ever did anything, before I ever spoke a word, before I ever said anything, did anything, chose you, you chose me. Faith rises in our hearts. The other way, another way we can do that is by remembering our salvation. Right? Paul says in Romans 5 that God demonstrates his love. Right? He doesn't, it's not just an abstract concept. He demonstrates his love. How does he demonstrate his love? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love with skin on it. That's Hesed love. I will recount the steadfast, faithful, committed, action-oriented love of God. When we come in the place of prayer in desperate need, how do we have confidence to call upon God when we deserve nothing? Romans 5 lays it out. He demonstrated love toward you when you were an enemy. Then he goes on to say, if he didn't spare his own son, how much more will he not give you all things in him? Our election, our salvation. Then here's, a, here's another thing you can do in, the, in that place when you recount his steadfast love. Look at the stories of the scripture. Look at the stories of the New Testament, the church in the New Testament. Learn church history. Learn, read biographies. Watch the way that God has demonstrated his faithful love to people all throughout history. And then start remembering it in your own life. Actually take time to recount the steadfast, active-oriented love of God in your life. Places where you didn't deserve it. You were desperate and you needed him and he gave you what you didn't deserve. You had no right to expect anything, yet he gave you everything. What would that look like in your life if your prayer life began there, right? Began in the place of not coming and saying, okay, God, my lot is tough right now. I mean, how many of us, that's where we start all the time. God, I need you to do this. Look how bad things are. Look at where I'm at. Look at the circumstances that are pressing in on me. Isaiah demonstrates for us in the darkest times where we begin is I will recount. I will remember. I will rehearse. I will make mention of the faithful acts of God's steadfast love. Then he moves, beginning in verse 10, to confession. So he recounts the steadfast love of God. He says, I'm going to make mention of this. I'm going to put you in remembrance here. But we do see a shift in recounting of the history of God's people. Isaiah shows, or he begins to demonstrate, that the blame of the position that the people find themselves in. Again, remember this is spoken to the exiles who would be in maybe one of the bleakest moments of Israel's history. They find themselves in a very dark moment. He says it is really important for us here that Isaiah doesn't put the blame on God and he doesn't put the blame on their enemies. He puts the blame solely on their own rebellion. Solely on their own rebellion. Look at verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, this one who was savior to them, the one who was father to them, the one who was compassionate and moved with pity, who demonstrated his faithful acts of covenant love 
in his being grieved, turned to be their enemy and fought against them. Isaiah squarely places the blame for the people's plight in their own rebellion against God and his ways. It's often easy for us to see enemies that press upon us as the problem, right? Or we blame God oftentimes. I'm here because you're far off. Why are you so far off from me? Why, are you, why did you put me in this spot? However, the enemies of God's people are always there. This is nothing new. Isaiah invites us to see that when the people of God experience seasons of decline, and what I actually hope that we would look at in our own lives is where we find ourselves. And we'll get there in a minute, in our contemporary moment. That it is because the people of God have rebelled in some way against God in belief and in action. This grieves his spirit. And in his anger, he turns against his people, opposing them in the wickedness of their hearts. I want you to hear this from Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is from a sermon series he preached on revival in the 50s. And he's, I would argue, if his assessment of this in the 50s is true, it is exponentially more true of us today, 70 years later. He says, this is the diagnosis Whether we like it or not, this is the real explanation of the plight we find ourselves in as a church, is what he's saying. It's not because there are new enemies that have arisen against the church. They're always there. It's not communism. It's not the two world wars. It's not the competition of the radio and the television and the cinema and the Instagram and the Twitter and the Tic Tac. No. There has always been opposition to the people of God. These things are not variable. They are constants. What has happened is that the church herself in her unutterable folly has rebelled against God and grieved and vexed his spirit in exactly the same way as Israel did in belief and in practice. Now this is going to be heavy. I think this is where we find ourselves in our moment. I think we find ourselves in the Western world in a moment of substantial decline as the people of God. Uh, We've traded in, in many ways, God's ways for the ways of the world. We've built our lives on standards of success that are not in line with God's person and his kingdom. In that place, God will, in his goodness and in his grace, raise up enemies to stand against us. He'll bring us to places of desolation to awaken us to the places we've turned against him. I think the church in our world is in trouble. It has not always been this way. There's a profound decline in the effectiveness and the potency of the church. Yesterday, I spent a good portion of the morning revisiting a a book that was written in 2013 by a man named uh, John Dickerson. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession. He looked at a lot of the data and the uh, information available at the time, and this is now nine years removed. He outlines six trends that the evangelical church was he was looking on the horizon and saying, there's a recession coming. Like if you looked at a financial recession and there are always indicators, he was saying, if you look at these indicators, there is a recession coming for the church in our nation. He gave six identifiers. And I actually think in the last two years, we've seen all six of these break. They're these, let me give them to you. Number one, inflated numbers. What he meant by that was the churches that look to be successful are only successful because they're taking people from other churches. He was saying, we aren't growing. The numbers are actually falling in America. And the big churches that have momentum and uh, excitement, the majority of them are only transfer growth, not multiplication growth. Which, seems, which makes us believe that our numbers are bigger than they actually are. It's like the housing bubble, 
right? When you have a, uh, numbers that are higher than the substance, you have a bubble and it's going to burst. Number two, he says, we're growing to be hated in the cultural moment. There's a growing hatred or opposition that stands outside of the church. Number three, he says, there are beginning to show, and this is nine years ago, and think about where we find ourselves today. He says there was beginning to show themselves these fracture lines of division within the church, politically, ideologically, underneath of what was happening. We're starting to see people divide over things and unity and pursuit of something in the name of Christ is falling to the wayside. Number four, he says, uh, we're bankrupt. Number five, he said, we're bleeding. And what he meant by that is, here's one of the remarkable statistics that he, he showed. Again, this is nine years ago. He said four out of five children that are raised in the church will leave the church by the time they're 29. He says, we're bleeding. We're bleeding. And then he said, we're sputtering. And what he meant by that is, we're not making disciples. We're, we're not oriented toward disciple making. Now, as he put all of that on the table, he said this, this was his summary statement of those six things. He said, ironically, the hard thing in the church is that many of the factors we consider signs of health in the contemporary United States are actually signs of wealth and power, things that have nothing to do with Christ's mandate. Now what we've walked through, that was nine years ago. Now what we've walked through in the last two years, you could call like the great COVID shakeup, right? Let me, let me give you a few numbers and I don't wanna bore you with statistics, but like this matters. One in three Christians stopped attending church in the last two years. One in three Christians stopped attending. One in three that do attend remained at the church they were at before. It's unbelievable. Barna came out with a study maybe six, eight weeks ago that 40% of pastors have seriously considered walking away from ministry in the last two years. We are in a tough spot, right? We're in a tough spot. The data might make us believe. Now, I don't want you to hear that and go, yeah, look at all this stuff outside, right? That we ought to blame the circumstances or the enemies that are pressing down upon us. This text points us to where we need to look. It reminds us that if we find ourselves in positions like we do with decline around us, it is because we have practiced folly. We've traded the Lord of glory for the Lords of the world and we need to repent, turn, and again call on the name of the Lord. I want you to hear another quote from Lloyd-Jones. He says, the church rebelled in her doctrine and in her belief. She set up the wisdom of men in the place of the wisdom of God. She became proud of her learning and of her knowledge. And what she asked about her preachers and her servants was no longer, is he filled with the spirit? Does he have a living experience of God? But is he cultivated? Is he cultured? What are his degrees? You could ask now, like, can he run an organization? Does he have ability to program things well? The church has only one source of strength, the power of God, the power of his spirit. Missionary to China, J. Hudson Taylor said it this way. We have given far too much attention to methods and machinery and to resources and too little to the source of power, the filling with the spirit. Now I want to just let this sit for a second. Like I, I feel like we're in a sober moment. Proverbs 22 talks about the prudent man 
sees danger and takes refuge. But the simple just go on and they suffer for it. What does prudence look like for us here? Right? What would prudence, if we find ourselves in a place of desperate need, I think we see it here, right? Isaiah's posture in this moment of desperation is the response of the heart that we need here. We need more of it together to turn to the Lord and begin to remember what he's done, confess our sins, say, hey, we have traded in the things that you have called us to and called for us to be about, and we've traded them in for other, other glory. The prayer then turns again to recount more of the works of God among his people. But in this time, he does it in the form of questions. Look at verse 11. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is the one who brought them up out of the sea? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? He begins to ask these questions in this bold prayer. He's going, God, where's the one that did all these things? Where's the one that parted the sea? Where's the one who opened the floodgates? Where's the one that led us out of captivity? Where's the one who did these things? This would sound a little bit like this to us. Where is the God of the apostles? Where's the God who took 120 ragtag Galileans and literally turned the world upside down? Where's the God who, when Peter and John were going up to the temple gate, saw the beggar and spoke and he stood up and walked and leaped and praised God? Where are you, God? Where's that God in our midst? We see this is the value of remembering the steadfast love of God. We, we, friends, we are in the place of desperate need. Right? We find ourselves where we are because of us. It's not God. It's not the enemies. It's not the circumstances. It's not any of that. It's us. We have exchanged his glory for another. We deserve nothing. How in the world could we be so bold to come into his presence and say, where's the God of the apostles? Would you do it again? Where is the God of the one who took these uneducated, simple people and literally changed and shook the Roman Empire at its core? Where is that God? We have no right to do that. We recount the steadfast love of the Lord, right? It is his business regularly to take people in their penitence and in their weakness and in their need and in their desperation and breathe upon them and revive them with new life. We are in the place where we've turned in our comfort, in our views of success, in our values, in what we think matters. So many places we've exchanged the call of come and die with come and have it all and Jesus. We can repent. We can repent. We can say, God, would you again show your kindness to us? Show your faithfulness to us. Show your mercy to us. And that's what we see in the last part of verses 15 to 19 and following. The prayer turns from remembering and confessing, and he begins to petition God to act in specific and powerful ways. It begins with the cry for God to look down and to see the state of his people. This isn't saying that God's unaware of it. This is the biblical way of asking God to begin the process of acting. Right in Exodus, when God says, I saw and I heard the prayers of my people, it wasn't like all of a sudden he was busy doing something else and then finally they got loud enough and he went, oh yeah, I forgot about you guys. 
Like he saw it every step of the way. The idea of God turning his face isn't that he all of a sudden becomes aware like, oh my goodness, I forgot about those guys over there. It's him saying, Isaiah's going, God, would you begin the process of acting on our behalf? Look down at us. See where we are at from your holy holy habitation. And then he starts to ask these unbelievable questions about why are you holding back your zeal? Why are you holding back your, your compassion? The things that I know are burning in your heart, you are holding them back. Stop holding them back. That's what he's saying. Why are you sitting back holding on to your compassion, your zeal? I know they are there. Would you act in that way? He's going to get to. But a new series of questions emerges asking where these expressions of his internal life are in verse 15. Now Isaiah makes a stark statement about the nature of the people in verse 16. God remains our father, but Abraham wouldn't know us and Israel wouldn't recognize us. This would be like us saying, we are the children of God, but Peter wouldn't know our expression of Christianity or Paul wouldn't recognize us. We should take a long and hard look at that. I think there's something for us to receive there. It would be like us going, God, we're your children. We are your children. We've been purchased. We've been bought. We've been made yours. But in our folly, in our waywardness, in our rebellion, there are saints throughout history that wouldn't recognize us as part of the family. God, would you turn to us? God, would you turn to us? Would you hear us? The last thing I want us to see is in verse 17. He says, oh Lord, why, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, for the tribes of your heritage. Now I want us to see that because it's important for me to highlight what Isaiah is not saying and then to see how this is an invitation. Isaiah is not saying that it's God's fault that the people are where they are. You can't read all of Isaiah and believe that, right? These people are responsible for their activities. Nothing about Isaiah's prophecy up to this point or the Old Testament in any place or the New Testament in any place would lead you to believe that God's people are not culpable for their sins or their behaviors before God. What Isaiah is doing is in a rhetorical and a poetic way. He is declaring that if Israel is hardened, it is only because God has not yet given them the grace to return. Because of this, I want you to see this. Because of this, Isaiah asks God to turn to them. What Isaiah is essentially saying is, would you come and soften us? Because even our desire to run after you, to humble ourselves, to turn back to you, to be uh, disposed towards your desires and what you would long for in your people, that is a grace. Only you can give that. So would you turn to us? Would you cause us to become soft in our hearts? Would you turn your face to us that we might be your servants again, is where he ends. He pleads with God, would you soften us? And what we'll see next week is in this place, he starts to begin to ask God to break in. But where I want us to end, I want us this morning, even as we come to the table, this is again, we talk about it every week. I don't want this to just be a ritual for us. This is the place, the premier place where we weekly remember the steadfast love of God. How do we know that God is disposed to us in our time of need? Look no further than the death of Jesus. That God took on flesh, 
lived the life we couldn't, died the death we deserve, so that if we put our faith in him, we can have his generous, hesed love disposed toward us. That's what we celebrate when we come to the table. And if you believe that you're a Christian and I wanna invite you to come and celebrate that, rehearse that, rejoice in that. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up in the front, the middle, and up in the balcony. We'll have a gluten-free to my right, your left. If you don't put your faith in Christ this morning, we want to ask that you not come take this meal with us, but that you would stay where you are. We have prayers in, in the seat back in front of you that might help you talk to God this morning. But this meal doesn't afford you anything. It doesn't merit the steadfast love of God towards you. So don't come and take this meal. We'd much rather you take Jesus. But for those of you who are coming, come and receive. And as every single week, we have people throughout the sanctuary that would love to pray with you and pray for you. But maybe this morning, um, I, don't, I, I don't know how to facilitate this. I want us to come and take communion together. But I also wonder if there's a place where maybe if you feel led to after you take communion in the time between now and the time we close to gather with a, a person or two people and begin to ask God, to move, um, to soften us, to move in the places where we don't deserve it, um, to humble ourselves, to repent, to say, hey, we've exchanged your ways for different ways. And we've exalted things that you don't call beautiful and good and that are not in line with your heart. Would you forgive us? Would you soften us? Would you remember again your kindness to us? Would you let the, whatever stopping up your zeal and your strength toward us, your might, your compassion, would you turn your face again toward us and bless us? I'd love to see groups pray for that throughout our sanctuary if you feel led to do that. I'm gonna pray now. The servers will come forward and we'll respond. God, we love you. God, this morning as we come to the table, we do just remember your steadfast love. We, we, we declare that at the cross, you demonstrated your love. You demonstrated, this is, this is the premier act of your steadfast love. When we who have no right to expect anything from you are given everything because of your kindness, your gentleness, your grace, your love, your power alone. God, we rejoice in that. And God, I ask that you would humble us. God, we need you. We need you. We need your spirit to soften us. We need your spirit to dispose us toward your grace. God, would you come and visit us this morning? Would you feed us? Would you nourish us? Would you meet us? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.